hey, guess what? You came back. Good job. That's huge. Coming back is, is a big thing. Um, I'm going to watch. I want you to come back next week, too. Um, last week, if the... I won't do that. That's wrong. Um, last week, we just kind of talked about background. We got a foundation um, for Solomon and kind of what we were walking into with Ecclesiastes. And I mentioned last week we we're going to do something special each week um, before I start my lecture part. What we're going to do is what, it, it, who was in this Psalms study a year, a couple years ago? Okay. What we did with Psalms is we realized so much about Psalms was stories, you know, and it was all these stories being told and these prayers and basically like you were opening up a prayer journal and reading it. And so what we asked some sweet friends um, to do, we asked them to, to share their stories and how God revealed himself in their lives and then how they responded. And so it seemed logical when we went into Ecclesiastes where we're going to be talking a lot about the things in life that we chase, that we chase the smoke of um, I want to please people or the smoke of trying to be satisfied in, in places that are outside of what God wants for me. And so with that, we thought, what a great way to do that, to have our friends come up and share a little bit about their story. So we're going to do stories again. They're going to look a little different. And so for this week, our sweet story, what are you? Story, co what are you? That was so rude. I'm so sorry. Story coordinator. Um, She's actually the person who's in charge of getting together with our ladies and getting them set up. And she said there's no way that she would rather start this than to share her own story. So with that, I wanted to introduce, she did say that. She's shaking her head and she's lying in church. It's wrong. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray. And while I'm praying, Molly's going to make her way up here. And then Molly Ackerman is going to share a little bit about her story and the things in life that she was chasing after. So let's pray together. Father God, uh, we come to you today and we, we, we offer all those things that we elevate above you. And we offer them to you today. And I thank you um, for the chance to be able to look at a life so richly lived um, with rightness and wrongness, but ultimately um, deep messy and just has so much to teach us about who you are. Thank you for Solomon. And Father, today um, I, I pray especially for my friend Molly and her willingness to share her personal story um, so that we could then learn about you, come to know you in a deeper way through that as well. And so Father, um, be in this place and be with us as we share these words in Jesus' name. Amen. My name is Molly Ackerman, and this is my smoke story. The smoke I was chasing was status or recognition. Specifically, I chased the status of being the best mom ever. My story really began when I was a little girl. I always knew that I wanted to be a mom. I grew up surrounded by great motherly examples, my mom, my aunts, my grandmothers, my friends' mothers, and my mother's friends. I wanted to be just like them. They seemed to do and be everything for their kids. When I got married in 1987, I was only 12, <laughs> really 15, but um, I saw that best mom smoke all around me. I wanted to have kids right away. 
as my mom did when she got married. I wanted everyone to see that I could be the best mom ever. Thankfully, my husband would reel me back in and remind me that I was still in college, that I needed to finish my degree, graduate from high school, um, and that we were just starting out together. So I finished my degree and became a high school Spanish teacher, first at South Garland High School, then at Coppell High School. I was able to practice being a mom just with other people's kids. It was awesome. After being married for seven years in 1994, we welcomed our daughter. <clears throat> I could finally start chasing that status smoke and everyone could see that I was the best mom ever. I did it just right. I read the requisite mom books, what to expect when expecting Dr. Spock. I set up the most adorable nursery. I even made all the crib bedding myself. It was so cute, if I do say so myself. My daughter was always perfectly dressed from the bow on the top of her curly head to the kids on her little feet. She was such a happy little girl. I continued to teach until our son was born three and a half years later. When I was able to quit my job and stay at home with the kids full time, I began chasing that status smoke in earnest. For the next 14 years, I did everything I could to show everyone around me that I was the best mom ever. When my kids were little, I enrolled them in Mother's Day Out programs and vacation Bible schools in the summer. I took them to story times and Gymboree play classes. I made them chicken nuggets and macaroni and cheese every Friday night because that's what they loved. I puffed up my chest every time I was complimented on how cute and sweet my kids were. As they got older and were in school, I volunteered in their classrooms. I was on the boards of the PTAs. I was even the president of one while we lived in Tokyo. When my daughter was in seventh grade, I offered to call, rather threatened to call, the mom of a girl that was upsetting her at school. And I even took underpants to my son at McKamey Middle School one morning when he realized while getting off the bus that he had forgotten to put them on at home. <laughs> Again, I puffed up my chest every time I was complimented on how polite and friendly my kids were. Everyone could see that I was killing it as a mom, well on my way to grasping the status of the best mom ever that I was still chasing. My kids were good, would, excuse me, were good students and they were good friends to all their friends. They were pleasant to be around, usually. They told me horror stories of how kids they knew acted toward and spoke to their moms. More kudos to me and my, my awesome mom skills because I had great open relationships with my kiddos. All that I ever learned or thought I knew about being a great mom was put to the test in January of 2012 when my daughter was 17 and a senior in high school. We found out that for about a year and a half, she had been making some poor choices that could have had some very serious long-term consequences physically, emotionally, and even legally. For me, it was like the speeding car that I had been driving, chasing the best mom ever smoke, had just hit a concrete wall. Or like the needle that was playing the mom Olympic music in my head had just scratched off the record. How could this be happening to me? I thought I'd been a good mom. I thought I knew everything about my kids' lives. I prayed for them every time they went out, for them to be safe and good, and if I'm being honest, not to do anything that would make me look bad. We had rules in our house and enforced them. 
I used to teach high school and I'd been trained to recognize and deal with the issues of teenagers. My daughter was smart in the top 13% of her class. I knew all of her friends. What did I do wrong? How did I fail her? And the real kicker, everyone saw what happened. Everyone knew about it all. So much for my best mom ever award. I don't know if you noticed, but most everything I've shared up to this point has been about me, myself, I. My life had to come to a screeching halt for me to realize that it wasn't all about me and my gaining status as the best mom ever. It was not all about my kids. It was and will always be all about God. God gave me the gift of motherhood. He gave me the most precious gifts in my children. My job as a mom is to nurture, not control, to give motivation and empowerment through grace and not efforts, to encourage and correct, but most of all to love. It's not been easy, nor has it been pretty, but it all has been a gift from God. By God's grace, our family was able to get through a time that affected each of us deeply and differently. I've been able to regrow my relationship with my daughter, focusing on forgiveness, trust, and love, just like God does with each of us. It's not up to me to find meaning in my life by chasing the smoke of status, yearning for the best mom ever award. I rejoice in the gifts that God has given me, knowing that he gives meaning to it all. So today, I'm where I am because of Christ alone. I'm at peace knowing that his hand is in everything rather than overwhelmed by the seasons he takes me through. God doesn't mean for us to remember all of the details of our personal stories, although the underpants delivery is hard to forget, and I remind my son of it all the time. (laughs) God wants us to remember to enjoy the ride, bumpy or smooth. In 2010, two years after being diagnosed with breast cancer and going through radical surgeries and chemotherapy, I participated in the Nike Women's Half Marathon in San Francisco. I wanted to do it alongside 12 of my friends who are mostly runners. I knew it would be ugly because I'm not a runner at all, but I knew I wanted to finish to prove to myself that I could. I did finish the race with God carrying me most of the way. I ended up with creaky knees and a hip problem that I'll have for the rest of my life, but I took in and found joy in the spectacular views of San Francisco the entire time. It only took me like two days. I think I even stopped to take a few pictures along the way. Who does that when you're running a marathon? As I'm now in the empty nester season of motherhood, I've got less hands-on mothering to do for my kids. I still wonder if I've done enough as a mom for my children, but I've had to let go of the basket and know that it's all in God's hands. Both kids are flourishing, praise God. My daughter is getting her master's degree in organizational and industrial psychology and works for a company called Leadership Worth Following. They help corporations create worthy leaders, and she has definitely become one herself. Occasionally, I do still have feelings of unworthiness as a mom. I feel guilt and shame over what happened during my daughter's senior year in high school. 
when I do, I think back to what happened one day this past spring. While sitting with a friend at her chemo session, I met a real-life Holy Spirit named Rose. And the other... Who me? Other friends there had met a few weeks before. After visiting with us for a while, she asked to pray over all of us. She grabbed each of our hands in turn and spoke words that only God would know about each of us, about what was in each of our hearts. Her words to me were this. It's not your fault. You're not finished. You still have fruit to bear. Let's hope that doesn't mean I'm going to have more babies. <laughs> God has continued to bless me with more opportunities to mother, but not in the traditional sense. Now I've got Young Life Capernaum friends and communities and schools kids that I get to love on. I don't need... some fancy award or recognition to find, join my life as a mom, or to show everyone that I'm the best mom ever. Although it's really pretty, with perfect gold font and holds 27 ounces of deliciousness. I'd rather have, you all have these, a handmade, flawed, crooked reminder of my season of motherhood with all the cracks and dimples that needs to be refilled over and over and over again because it's so small. But it's because it's handmade by God. You want to leave that big mug for me? I might need that. <laughs> We've all got stories, right? We all chase things, don't we? I'm sure a lot of you, whether you're a mom or not, relate to Molly's story. And that's what's beautiful about what God gives us in the lives of believers. And that's what's beautiful about what God gives us in his word, right? And so... Today we're going to look at um, we're going to look at a guy who wasn't a mom. How about that for a segue? Hmm? Um, we're going to look at King Solomon. So go ahead and open your Bibles. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles to First Kings chapter three? Um, while you're getting there, I want to say this: Welcome to those of you who are here this week for the first time. Welcome to those of you who are dusting off your Bibles. For those of you who have well-worn Bibles, I, I don't care where you come from or what your history is, we're glad you're here. And I say this all the time, get comfortable with your table of contents. And you know what else? If you look over and the girl next to you seems to be flipping to her first kings real fast, I promise you this, she looked at her table of contents earlier. <laughs> I'm just saying. Or she has tabs, right? Who has tabs? Those things, guys, really legit. Those are the deal. Go get those. Well, I know this week in your homework, I'm going to commend you because there was a lot of jumping around and that was a lot of Old Testament stuff. In the coming weeks, we're going to spend a lot more time in just Ecclesiastes. But this week, 
what I tried to do was give us a big, broad spectrum of understanding of who Solomon is. Before we get started, I want to ask you that. A couple of, um, so I'd just love to hear from you guys if you just toss out some things. If I said to you, tell me something about Solomon, something you learned in homework or something you, you might have known, what are a couple of things that you know about King Solomon? Bring it. He was wise. Wisest man ever lived. Yes, he loved. He loved the ladies. Solomon loved the ladies. Yeah, he did. He did do that. What else? Wealthy. What else speak up? I'm sorry. He was very loved by God, right? God even spoke that over him as he was born, right? What are some things that he built? He was a builder, right? What did he build? Temple. Temple. Anything else? Big old palace. He did build that. He also built cities, fortified cities. He built walls. He, there's a whole list of things that we didn't cover this week, but he was a builder. Anything else you can think of about our guy, our guy Solomon? Younger than Justin Bieber. Younger than Justin Bieber. Wow, that is perspective. <laughs> you think Justin Bieber asked for wisdom from God? Okay, let's not go there. He was young when he was asking for wisdom, wasn't he? What did he write? What are some things that he wrote? Proverbs and songs, thousands of them. We read later, and we'll talk about it in a little bit, that he had people coming from all over the world to hear him because he was so wise, and he had such a reputation for wisdom. That's who Solomon was. In our homework this week, I introduced this lesson this way. I said, whenever you are, 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 are reading something, you need to make sure, if you have a gift or a card or a letter, you need to make sure you know what about it, who it's from, right? And so that's what we're doing. We're going to read about who this book of Ecclesiastes is from. And so this week, that's where we go with Solomon. There's a few things we're going to focus in on in lecture today about Solomon's life. We're going to go and we're going to look through three things that were really wrong about King Solomon. We're going to talk about how he was the wrong king. He went to the wrong places and he made wrong choices. Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, you don't have to raise your hand. It's okay. We're also going to look at the rightness of things in his life, the good things in his life. In the midst of, like, we can get pretty overwhelmed with all those dark things when we read about his life. But we have to remember this, too. There were right promises, and there was right desires, and there was a right building of a right temple. And so we're going to, t- we're going to look at those two different parts of his life. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at why King Solomon was technically the wrong king. Why he was the wrong king. If you know anything about King Solomon, about his history, we were real brief in the lesson when we talked about it. But I wanted to give you a little bit additional background. King Solomon's parents were King David. Who's King David in the Bible? What does God call him? Man after God's own heart, right? We have so many Psalms written by King David, and we have so much historical information about the man that he was, and he loved the Lord. Did he mess up? Oh, yeah, is right. Oh, yeah, is right. He messed up a lot, but he was the man after God's own heart. Well, just so that you know, just to give you the quick version, Bathsheba was his mom. And let me put it this way. Something to think about when you think about Solomon was he was 
he was the 17th of 19 sons that David had. 17th of 19. It's a lot of dang sons, isn't it? He was not necessarily who most would think would be next in line for the throne. He had another brother who his brother was actually older and he was actually setting himself up as David got to the end of his life. He was setting himself up to be the next predecessor of the throne. His name was Adonijah. And Adonijah was, he um, was supported by army commanders. He was supported by priests and he had a plan. Okay. He had a plan. Solomon, not so much, but there were folks around him who did. Now, if we go back at, and we, we look back at, at the life before Solomon was really ready to be king, you have Bathsheba and David, and you have um, their, their Nathan is there with them, and he's a prophet. And if you remember this, I may have said this last week, and if I didn't write this down, because I always think this is, I need this. A priest is different than a prophet, okay? A prophet, when you see the word prophet, a prophet's job is to be the mouthpiece of God for the people, okay? So when we see things about Nathan and other prophets, they're speaking on behalf of God to people. God is inspiring them and telling them what to say. A priest is the opposite. A priest will come to God on the behalf of man, okay? So it's important to know that we've got Nathan and he's this prophet. He's speaking on behalf of God. And so there's this whole scheming thing that's going on where they know that Solomon's supposed to be the king. And so they go and they do some trickery. And they, anyway, what they end up doing is they convince David to go ahead and make Solomon king right now. So Adonijah's out, Solomon's in. He's the wrong king. Wrong king. Can God use wrong people? He does. Can God use people that were the unlikely choice? He does all the time. And so Solomon is our king. We move on to wrong places. You read, and you, you first of all, you covered some ground, girls. You covered so much ground in 1 Kings, and I'm really, really proud of you, of us, because that was impressive. But if you'll remember, in 1 Kings, I had you switch, switch to it right now, 1 Kings chapter 3. There were some things going on there. I'm going to read that out loud and kind of bring you, bring you back around so you remember what was happening. First Kings chapter 3. And if you'll remember this, here's, what's, here's how we begin First Kings chapter 3. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and he brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord. And the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at high places. However, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord, Solomon, lo <clears throat> Solomon loved the Lord. Walking in the statutes of David, his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place Solomon used to offer thousands of burnt offerings on the altar. At Gibeon is where he was. What's important here is that we, what we don't understand, historians don't really understand, is this. We know that Solomon is going to Gibeon at these high places to offer sacrifices. Okay, the good news is, remember we talked about the drift that happens in his life. The good news is this. He's not offering sacrifices to pagan gods. He's offering sacrifices to the one true God. But the problem is the place. The problem is the place. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 17, 
And in Deuteronomy 12, God is very clear about how sacrifices are to be offered to the Lord. And Solomon would have known this. And so it's interesting, isn't it, that right here we have an example of Solomon making a choice to sacrifice in a wrong place, even though he knows what's best. It's funny. You got a king that we're watching his life, and we talk about how little by little choices he makes are drawing him farther and farther away from the Lord. And you see this, and you know what I hear in my ear? I hear me making choices that are not technically these sinful, terrible choices. I'm not technically breaking all the rules yet, but what I am doing is I'm taking a step farther away from God and closer to my own set of rules and standards a little farther away from God, closer to what I think is best. Lots of scholars wonder why God doesn't rebuke him here. There's no rebuke. He doesn't say anything, does he? He recognizes, and it's made very clear that this is not the place he's to be sacrificing, but what happens next? You go on down to verse 6, and you see this. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love, to your servant, David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on the throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David. He's praising the Lord. God loves him and is proud of him despite the places that he's not supposed to be. He's the wrong king. He was in the wrong place. You know, later we talk about how he didn't really make, he didn't, wasn't, wasn't sacrificing to the wrong gods yet. He was just kind of inching toward making bad choices. But in chapter 11, verse 7, you know what he does? He's fully over the edge. He's now building high places to pagan gods and worshiping them there. So this step takes him farther and farther away from God. Wrong king, wrong places, wrong choices. Did you see Solomon's wrong choices in your study, in your homework this week? A lot of wrong choices, didn't he? You called out a couple of them when we were talking. If you'll remember, I referred back to Hebrews 2. Hebrews Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. And that verse says this. Therefore, we must pay close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Solomon was drifting when it came to his choices. He's dealing with wrong people. He's making wrong plans. In verse 3, 1, in chapter 3, verse 1, in 1 Kings, he makes a marriage alliance. He makes a marriage alliance with people that are not, that, that, it doesn't say that he's not supposed to marry him, but he's teetering on the line. I think of it this way. Back when I was in high school, I was a lifeguard. I know. Wouldn't that be, make you feel so safe to be saved by me? I was really bad for lifeguard, actually. Um, I was real good at sitting and, and getting sun, but I was not good at saving people. But I will tell you this. One of the things that was real interesting is they teach you this. I did remember this, that when somebody needs saving, you know what you do not do? You don't lean over and give them a hand and try to pull them out, do you? You know why? Because it's a lot easier for somebody to pull you down into the water than for you to pull them up. What you have to do is you have to get low and then you make yourself on the ground and and you can use leverage. But I always thought that was such an interesting illustration that it's easier for somebody to pull you down. Gravity will take you down 
than it is to pull people up. I think about Solomon and I think about the weddings and I think about all the marriages and the alliances and all the women. And, and I think, you know, in his mind somewhere in there, there's that young Solomon who asked the Lord for wisdom. And I think somewhere deep down in there, he's thinking, oh, I'm going to bring goodness to the, I've got the wisdom from God. It was a gift. And I'm going to bring great things to them. And all the while, what were they doing? They were pulling him down with them. Verse 3, 1, there's this marriage alliance. You go on down to chapter 9, verse 15. He's using slave labor to build the projects that he's working on. Slave labor. These are God's people who were in captivity and they were slaves, were they not? They were rescued out of slavery, out of captivity, never hoping to go back there. And Solomon himself is doing the same thing in the name of building. Verse 16 of chapter 9, he's receiving wedding gifts. What were those wedding gifts? Anybody know? Anybody remember? They were precious. Death and destruction is what he received as a dowry. He received from the king a burnt out kingdom of people that had been killed and burned to death and children sacrificed as an offering for a wedding present. That's our wrong king. You know, he goes on, and then chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 and 3, we learn, like we said earlier, that he has wives and concubines. And this is what's interesting about that. We've all heard that about him, and we know that that's the way he lived. Chapter 11 goes like this, verse 2, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn you away, turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses, 300 concubines, and this is the part that gets you. And his wives turned away his heart. He got pulled in the pool, didn't he? And so it goes. His, long, his wrong choices continue on and on and on. And in fact, if you go back and you read in Deuteronomy, there's a whole chapter. We read a little bit this week, but let me tell you something. There's a whole chapter that's real specific about kings, about the Israelite kings and what they were supposed to be forbidden from. Listen to this for a minute and think about everything you know about our guy, our dude making wrong choices. And tell me if this sounds familiar. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 17, it says this, concerning the kings, concerning Israel's kings. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are all around me. Now, if you go back in time, that's how kings starting to become a thing in Israel. Is because all the Israelite people, once they were free and they, they, were, they were looking around the rest of the world, and they're like, well, they all have kings. So, God, we want kings. And so God says, all right, cool. I'm going to give you what you want. So he sets, sells them, I'm going to give you kings. Verse 15 you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. God chose Solomon, didn't he? We read about it. He loved Solomon. He was the wrong king. But God knew that he was ultimately going to be the right king for what was to come. He says, it says this in Deuteronomy. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he 
must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Did Solomon acquire many horses and chariots? Did we read about that this week? Heck yeah, he did. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. That is Solomon. That's everything it says that Israelite kings are not to be. That's our guy. That's what he's done. Listen, if there's one thing we can understand about the wrong king, the wrong places, and the wrong choices, it's this. That God is not surprised by Solomon's drift of disobedience. He's not surprised by it. It wasn't like he thought that he would set Solomon in place and he would be this perfect king, right? He knew he's God. God is not surprised by Solomon's drift of disobedience, but his plan is never knocked off course because of it. His plan is never knocked off course Solomon's life, it wasn't only wrong choices and it wasn't only unrecoverable um, sin that was unuseful to God, was it? His story also is this beautiful illustration of who God is in the midst of some messy, twisty times. And I think as we go along this entire semester, we're going to see that more and more. And that all these things, only a few of which, only about seven minutes worth of which we've talked about today, are just the very things that God says, hey, you know what's cool about me? I can use it anyway. That's what he did with David, right? That's what he did with his dad, David. He used even the yucky, messy stuff. Consequences remained. God is still sovereign. God still is just. But he can use any of us. All of us are Solomon, aren't we? We've made wrong choices. There have been times when we shouldn't have been the ones standing where we were, but there we were. We've been to wrong places. We've tried to pull people out of the water and got sucked right in. Maybe you're there right now. I don't know. But know this, that in spite of it all, God can use it. And so you look at Solomon's life and there's other things that are bigger and brighter than the wrongness and they are the right things. And right now, the first thing we're going to look at is the right promises. Now, stay with me because this is a little bit before Solomon, but you'll see why it matters. Before Solomon even came along, there was this thing that God and David had, and it was called a covenant. And this is what I love about God. God is a, he is a covenant God. And you know what a covenant means? I like this term. It's more than a promise. It's more than a promise. Here's what a covenant is. It's basically God laying out his own job description. He's saying, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And the beauty is God never compromises his job description. And so it's like it's signed and notarized right there by God. So God lays out for us his job description in the form of a covenant with Solomon's dad, King David. Now, if you're familiar with the whole um, Davidic um, 
covenant, that's super awesome. I'm really proud of you. I had to go and read up about it and learn about it. But it is back here in the Old Testament too. And it's actually, you can turn there if you want to. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And that's where God comes to David and they have this whole thing. And they talk about through the prophet Nathan, because remember that Nathan is a prophet, so he is a mouthpiece of God to the people. So through Nathan, we see this covenant unfold. A fun fact, here's a fun fact. You know when I say that, it's probably really not fun at all. But um, fun fact, Nathan was actually such a pivotal part of this whole covenant and that of God sharing this covenant with David. But then Nathan, remember where he was earlier? He was the one in charge of working with Bathsheba to get Solomon on the throne, wasn't he? He was also really tightly involved in telling David that he was making bad choices when he had adultery and murder and all these things in his life that led him down dark paths. So we, here we are with Nathan, and he's telling David, this is what God wants you to understand. And I'll summarize it for you, but you can go back and read. And if you read through 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 12, it's really, there's like three main things that this covenant is about. And it's important that we know it. You know why? Because it still affects us today. We're still part of it. The covenant is this. He basically says, one, the first thing is I'm going to make sure that God's people always have a place. I'm going to make sure God's people always have a place. In that part of the covenant, he's reaffirming two other covenants that came through Abraham and came through Moses. I bet it was comforting to God's people to hear that, right? Because these people have been historically always looking for their promised land. Whether they're in, in slavery or whether they're moving or whether they're being chased, but they're always, always looking for the promised land. And so he says, I'm telling you right now, I'm the God who's given you my job description and you're going to have that place. The second thing he says is, David, your son will be blessed and he will be the builder of the temple. How cool is that? Who's that? It's our man, Solomon, right? So all the way back, he's already, God's already confirming for him that this is what's going to happen. And the third thing is this. He says, David's house or David's throne kingdom will be established forever. David's kingdom will be established forever. And that's in verses 16 and 17. Listen to the wording on this thing. He says, and your house, David, this is God speaking toward David, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke these words to David. And so what do we learn about this throne? It's going to be there for how long? Forever. He says it like three times, guys. And when they repeat stuff, what is it? It's like we need to pay attention. God is a promise keeper. God doesn't break his promises. And so we know that he has full intention of seeing this through on behalf of this covenant with David. Well, here's the problem. Here's a problem. A succession of imperfect kings can never fulfill that promise. Let me say it again. A succession of imperfect kings cannot fulfill that promise, and here's why. What we have, the hindsight of being able to know, is that after King Solomon... The entire Israel kingdom fell apart. You covered it in your homework. We talked about it, didn't we? What happened? It divided into how many parts? Two parts. 
And so all of a sudden, you don't have this united kingdom. And so you go back to this Davidic covenant. You're like, hey, wait, God, you, you messed up. Like, I'm kind of sure you, you, that was a mistake. You probably didn't understand. And that's what's so amazing about this covenant is it really becomes real because you realize these imperfect kings and this mess that Israel is could never bring forth a throne forever. If God were true to his word, And if he sticks to his job description in 2 Samuel 7, then that means he has to raise up a righteous, obedient son of David to take the throne. Because God is a promise keeper and God doesn't mess up. And so this covenant matters and it matters to Solomon because for him, it's confusing. I don't understand. If my kingdom falls apart, I'm not on the throne anymore, the physical throne but God has other plans that we get to see. Solomon is part of the promise, but the promise becomes fulfilled. The throne that David's son sits on forever happens a few pages to the right. In Luke 1, 31 and 33, you know what it says? It talks about a birth, and it talks about a birth Um, of a son who comes from the throne of David. That's a direct quote. Jesus Christ fulfills the promise that God made to David through David, through Solomon, and through the entire line. Imperfect kings could not satisfy that. Only one perfect king could. And so it's all tied in. Like I think that's what blows my mind about the Old Testament more than anything. It's like the more you read it, the more you're like, so no joke, it's about Jesus. Sunday school answer. It's like a legitimate thing. It's all about Jesus. Christ fulfills the prophecy. He's currently ruling at the right hand of God right now. Currently sitting at the right hand of the throne right now. Prophecy fulfilled. You know what another part of that prophecy that will be fulfilled is there will come a day when he comes back and he rules on this earth. Prophecy fulfilled. Solomon is a part of this. And so that is a right promise that Solomon's life is a part of. And what do we learn about God through that? We learn this, that God is a promise keeper who can use wrong people to fulfill his right purposes. Amen? Wrong people can fulfill his right purposes. We got Solomon. He was a mess. He was wrong in a lot of ways. And God is going to use him for the greatest revelation to come. Another right thing we see about Solomon is that he had a right request before God. Do you remember, like uh, Jessica said, when he was young, before obviously before he was wise, God comes to him in a dream and says what? You, you ask me anything you want. And what does he ask for? He asks for wisdom. In 1 Kings 3, 9, that's what he asks for. He asks for understanding and he asks for wisdom. I don't know about you guys, but I don't know a lot of teenagers who would ask for that. None of them in my house, that's for sure. He says this, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this your great people. He asked for this right desire because he wanted to govern God's people well. 
His motive was pure. I think that's so crazy, right? Because just a little bit before, he was at Gibeon offering sacrifices. And then he comes, and the next thing we see is that God is proud of him and loves him and honors that request. His request results in wisdom, fame. He has a voice. Think about this for a minute. Not only does he have a voice over the 3,000 proverbs and the over 1,000 songs that he wrote and, and sang and taught, but here we are in 2017 in Flower Mound, Texas, reading his words. God gave him wisdom and gave him a voice. He had influence and he impacted. He excelled at all the things, riches and wisdom and wealth, because God saw what he asked for and gave him these blessings to go in conjunction with that wisdom. His wisdom was attained and can be our wisdom because we gain it by reading Ecclesiastes, by reading about his life. God is an interested listener when it comes to what we ask. Do you realize that? He wants to hear you ask. He's an interested listener and he honors the prayers of those who love him. Bottom line, whatever we want to say about our guy Solomon, God honored that prayer and honored that request because he knew his heart. The next thing that we see about Solomon that was so right was the right temple. You know, you guys covered a lot of the details, right? And so I'm not going to go into all those, but the temple building, essentially 1 Kings 6 through 8, is all laid out, all the details. It's almost like the story of, um, of Solomon is all through the first part of 1 Kings, and then in about chapter 6, we pause and we get the details, right? Did you get some details? Yeah, I mean, come on, all that gold and cedar and all that stuff. This temple was built in the fourth year of his reign. It was um, seven years long it took in 1 Kings 6, 38. And the details were incredibly amazing to read. And one of our girls in our small group yesterday pointed out, you know, the cool part about that is that God laid all that out real specifically with David. And then David was able to share that with his son. Because remember, David didn't get the honor of building the temple he had too much bloodshed, too much going on in his life, and God said, I'm passing that gift onto your son. But here's what's the coolest part about this temple, in my opinion. It's this. You know, this temple that he was building, I hear that, and I'm just like, oh, they're building stuff. Okay, that's cool. It was a replacement. It was a permanent replacement that was going to take away that wandering tabernacle tent that the Israelites had carried with them. Remember I said before, they weren't settled. They were moving all the time, and what were they carrying with them? We're carrying the tabernacle. And it was this crazy thing. If you've never gone and read, oh my goodness, go back and read about it. But the details of that were just as crazy as the details of the temple. In fact, the temple, even in some cases, the, um, the, the measurements for the tabernacle that were so specific and exact, even the temple was just an exact replica of that, but even more elaborate and beautiful. And ultimately to us here in this place, it kind of sounds a little over the top, but what you need to understand is this, God said to them, I need a place to dwell. I need a place to dwell. And so rather than carrying a tent, David said, I'm, I'm done living in a house while God lives in a tent. We're going to make him something cool. And that's what happened with the temple. It's a permanent replacement, a permanent resting place, a permanent dwelling place for God. The thing about that 
is we see it prophesied and we see Jesus' words even come to fruition later in the Bible. You know, in, in 400 years later, the Babylonians destroyed that temple, that beautiful, amazing temple. And then what happened? Got rebuilt. Got rebuilt. Wow, that's cool. Rebuilt again. But you know what Jesus predicted? It would be rubble. And it was. And it is. And the only thing standing from the second temple build is one wall. And that's that wailing wall that you see whenever you see people go visit Jerusalem. But here's the deal, guys. All of these temples and all these things, while they were a beautiful offering to God, and they were this wonderful thing, and and Solomon did right in the eyes of God in building this temple, they were just a precursor to the temple that exists now. The word became flesh, and he took residence among us. The word there in John 1.14, you know what that word is? The actual literal word used is that he tabernacled among us. Tabernacle. That's what the temple replaced, the place that God dwelt. So the thing that's so cool about us sitting here right now, we don't need to go to a temple. We don't need to go to a tabernacle because you know what we have? We have that temple now. I'm going to close I got like a couple minutes. I'm going to finish with this. I want you to know this. Where we sit now, as right as this temple was and as beautiful as the history is and how important it is for us to read about Solomon and the mess that he was and how he still did right in the eyes of God in spite of it, what we need to know is that now we live in a place because Jesus came that it matters more who our temple is than where we worship. It matters more who it is. In John 4, 21 through 26, we see this story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And a lot of us have read it, and a lot of us have heard it in a lot of different times. But let me, let me challenge you to think about it in terms of a temple, in terms of this tabernacle, this idea that we don't need a building, okay? Jesus made it very clear to this woman that worshiping God is no longer a question of the right place to go to do it, and it's now a matter of worshiping the right person, and it's Jesus himself. He says it to her face. He says to her, I, the one who is speaking to you, am he. When she says, I know a Messiah is coming, and whenever he comes, he will tell us everything, and Jesus says, I am him, I am he. God has given us, right now, sitting here, this beautiful picture of all the details and the seven years building this elaborate, amazing temple. And he says, hey, but you know what? It's all rubble because it doesn't matter. All that matters is who you worship, who you come to, and who you know. And that has to be Jesus. God is the provider of our forever temple where he longs to meet us, to know us, and to love us. Listen, as we get to the end of Solomon's life in this lesson, I mean, we're going to see all sorts of stuff when we come to the next couple of lessons, but I want you to remember all the things that you've read. I want you to remember who he is, where he lived, how he lived, and what mattered. Because here's here's the thing. Man's failures are never the final word. We're going to read about failures, and Solomon is going to confess those failures. And he's going to say to us, I did all these things, and it was nothing. It was chasing smoke. You've got to trust me. All that matters is fearing God and being obedient to him. Over and over and over, we're going to hear it. We have 
We have the privilege of living on the other side of that Davidic covenant. Solomon was in the middle of it trying to figure things out, but we look back and we see this. We see that in Luke 1, 30 through 33, this is what happens. Are you ready? It may sound familiar, but I want you to listen to it with different ears. So the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Listen, you will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. Solomon's life Solomon's story is messy, and there are times that it is wrong. A lot of times we read about people in the Bible, and we decide that if it says that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, God, are you telling us that that's right? He never says those things are right. He says instead, I use wrongness for my greater good. He loves us so much that even in our failures, he can bring glory to himself. And that's what he did through Solomon. Jesus sits on the throne forever and ever. The son of David. Let's pray. God, you're not surprised by our disobedience, but you never, ever veer off of your plan. God, you're not ever, ever going to break your promises to us. And thank you that you use wrong people to fulfill your purposes. You listen and you hear our prayers and you know our messes and you know what to do in spite of us. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here who doesn't know who you are, who doesn't understand that the temple is rubble and we don't need to go there and we don't have rules that we have to follow to get to you, the only thing we have to know is your son, Jesus. He came to be the temple for us. He came to be the place where we approach you, God. Thank you for that. And I pray today that as we walk into the first chapter of Ecclesiastes moving forward, that we remember the history of Solomon, that we understand all the wrong things, but God, above all, we understand that no matter what, you can use any failure, you can use any frustration, and God, you can use any of it for your glory. I thank you for Solomon. I thank you for the example of his life. In Jesus' name, amen.